Good afternoon and welcome to Ransomware in Healthcare. Why are we targeted and what can we do about it? A health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Hewlett Packard Enterprise and Intel. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions and comments in the Q&A box, and uh, we're going to have a little poll that we'll do later to get you involved. Uh, just so you, we get your see, screen set up right, at the top of the screen, click and uh, get that into side-by-side -side mode. Adjust the divider so you get the boxes to the size you like, and it should say speakers view in the top right-hand corner. So that gives you a nicer view of the screen. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Art Ream. Chief Information Security Officer and Senior Director of Applications with the Cambridge Health Alliance, Christopher Friends, AVP of Information Security at Interfaith Medical Center, and James Morrison, Distinguished Technologist for Cybersecurity with HPE. And then we will do our audience Q&A. So let's jump right into our chat. Uh, please give me an overview of your organization and role. Art, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Uh, my name is Art Ream. I'm from Cambridge Health Alliance. It's a uh, three-hospital system that's in the city of Cambridge, Everett, Massachusetts, um, and the larger Boston area with our um, outpatient uh, clinics that spread across the region. Uh, we serve around 140,000 patients. Uh, we have a large behavioral health population. We're also the Public Health Commission for the City of Cambridge, um, a, a little bit different model than most healthcare systems. Um, we um, are a partnership with Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Mass General um, Children's Hospitals um, and nationally accredited public health uh, department to, to boot with that. Excellent, Art. Thanks for joining today. Uh, Chris? Sure, I'm Chris Friends. I'm the AVP of Information Security for Interfaith Medical Center, and we are a 287-bed hospital located in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, we're largely a safety net hospital, and one of the things we're actually best known for is our information security program, as we were one of the first hospitals in the country to actually achieve a fully zero-trust network. Excellent, Chris. Thank you. Uh, James? So uh, my name is uh, James Morrison. I'm a technologist with HPE. Uh, prior to that, I worked 22 years in the FBI out of the Houston office working cybercrime uh, and worked a lot with the medical center here in the Houston area, trying to help hospitals and other industries sort of, uh, you know, ask the right questions from a cybersecurity standpoint. Um, and just, and that's kind of been my focus with HPE is, um, you know, going across product line, but also helping customers come to the right solutions for cybersecurity, uh, even if sometimes it's not HPE, because I think the conversation we need to have is, is more, you know, what is right for you um, and where are you trying to go and, and what are the transformations you're trying to have? Very good, thank you, James. Okay, uh, let's get into the meat of it. Why has, ransom, why has ransomware threat grown at such an alarming rate? Uh, uh, Chris, let's start with you. Sure, I think it's, it's grown at an alarming rate largely because Hospitals, unfortunately, do tend to have poor information security programs. Hospitals tend to be a relatively soft target compared to other industries. That's changing, fortunately, but traditionally, hospitals have not taken security as seriously as they should. Um, it's also prevalent in hospitals because it's not just the patient systems that it puts at risk, but actually the patients themselves. So it's more than just the computers. If you look at things like WannaCry, it actually encrypted not just computer systems, but a lot of medical devices within healthcare as well. So that provides more of an impetus to actually pay the ransom because it's not just information on the line. It can actually be patient lives and patient care on the line as well. So I think um, combined with the traditionally poor security practices, as well as the um, need to often um, pay the ransom to maintain patient safety, it makes hospitals particularly um, desirable targets. Yeah, very good. Uh, James? Yeah, I mean, it really does go back to uh, the, the financial aspect of it. Um, I've always said that uh, cyber crime and especially ransomware comes out of the target attack of 2013, because what happens is, is that the cyber programmers, uh, criminal programmers start recognizing that they can uh, sell their product. 
And so now ransomware is a service for sale on the dark web. Uh, you can go out there, you can buy that, that software. You don't even know how, need to know how to spell IT at that point. They will give you 24-7 operations. It's a full-blown you know, a, a organization that will provide software to you. Um, and now, because especially in the healthcare industry, and kind of what Chris was, Christopher was talking about, is the, the criticality of your data makes it so much more likely that ransomware is going to be dropped on you quickly. Uh, because it, it, the idea from a criminal standpoint is, what are you willing to pay me for, right? Uh, so and, and if, if a doctor can't access patient records, and this we saw this with the British healthcare system with, uh, you know, not Petya, um, they were able to get between the doctors and those patient records. You have to cancel surgeries. You have to cancel, you know, uh, you know, day-to-day operations. And it's just because, and hospitals are moving very quickly towards IoT and employment. And IoT is a huge attack surface right now because a lot of times the, the IoT products are deployed with no security built into them. There's always an expectation that security will be overlaid by the healthcare industry through some sort of model. And it just doesn't always happen. James, are you saying these uh, bad actors, they sell this software and they also provide support? They absolutely do. It's it's a it's amazing when <laughs> you go out there. Um, they have a twenty four seven helpline, and they will help you set up the software in your in your 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 place. They will they, and they they do it at they ask for forty percent of the ransom. So what they do is they they want to cut forty percent. So they they take a cut of whatever they get. So it, here's how easy it is right now. I can go out on the dark web and I can buy a hundred thousand email addresses for a hundred bucks, right? These are validated email addresses because somebody clicked on them somewhere along the line. And then I can go to a ransomware company, ask for 40% of the profit, you know, and then they will send me a link on how to deploy their ransomware. I send this email out to 100,000 people, simple phishing attack, uh, 100,000 people. The low number is 5,000 people click on that link and get infected with ransomware. That's low. Of those 5,000 people, 1,000 of them will pay me $400 to get their data back. I just made $400,000. I pay $160 to my criminal your ransomware group. I bring $240 home in that simple of an attack. It's just too easy, too, too lucrative. I don't want to get too specific into this, but it is interesting. Are you saying that sometimes as lawyers set up their arrangements, uh, they don't get paid unless they win you money? Right. So is that the – really? Absolutely. So we'll give you the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and there's, there's different – and so they have business models. It, it really has become, and so, and, and Christopher was talking about this as well. What we're also seeing is we're seeing ransomware also become a data breach. So like the Maze ransomware, which was deployed this year, we started to see it. They're going to steal your data first, then they're going to ransom your data. Then they're going to come back. If you don't pay the ransom, they're going to come back and say, oh, by the way, I stole your data too. Are you willing to pay me to prevent that data from going public? And we've seen a third attack where the criminals will turn you over to regulators if you don't pay them money. So and this over is, to regulators. Yeah. So they'll they'll send an anonymous email to a HIPAA, you know, or to CCPA or to GDPR and, and say you were attacked and it will usually prompt some sort of investigation. So it's it's the, the inability to hide ransomware is just getting less and less. Art, your thoughts about the question or anything that James has said? Yeah, James and uh, Christopher are, are spot on. It's it's the it's the new startup industry, if you want to call it that. I mean, let's be frank about it. And, you know, I, I hate to give credit where credit's due, but they do have a model, a business model, like uh, James says, and um, they target healthcare. And Christopher's spot on at that point in time. Most of your cybersecurity organizational um, dollars in healthcare are competing against what healthcare does take care of patients. Am I going to get funding or is the dialysis program and the new the new dialysis machines going to get funded or are they going to split funding? So we're in a competition internally uh, to actually fund cybersecurity and make and and have that adequately funded and and resource from a human uh, resources perspective. And let's and the other part of this is, is healthcare while it's been forced with COVID and everything to telehealth, which is just another vector to get in or or compromise something, you think about the pace of technology. If you have a high tech company, they're gonna keep pace with that technology, either develop it, buy it and use it. Healthcare is struggles to actually keep up with computer and 
you know, new technology for monitoring and cybersecurity programs and stuff like that, because it's very expensive. Uh, and the top premier tools that you would actually put into your program to help you um, become, you know, really expensive for the organization and, and, and a process that has to go from the board down. So you need that overall support from them in order to adequately fund it. They don't often think about the breach and what it's going to cost for the next five years if you do have one, um, what the investigation, the monitoring and everything like that actually has to happen. Um, if you Healthcare will start to creep. They're always slow adopters in this realm, but they're really fast on new technology, telehealth, things coming in the door, IoT. We want the next best thing that's you know wireless for an infusion pump that talks back to the EHR. Um, and then and then we all from from Christopher's comment about a zero trust network, we are all battling against the diagnostic industry and how they deal with FDA blood bank regulations and produce PCs and you know things that run instruments that we have to patch and work with. But we got to be careful that we don't get into the manufacturing stream because we change somehow how their programs work. So that's another avenue that we're always paying attention to. And I think the other process that we think about as well that can get compromised rather quickly, hospitals are now going to really smart buildings. I mean, they used to be these brick and mortar shops that were patched together or grew over time through acquisition, but they're starting to redo the, you know, the, the building systems now. They're starting to put more technology and automate those things. So that's just another vector that we have to pay attention to and talk with and partner with. Well, and I wanted to build on that. I think Art brings up a great point, you know, as IoT and I kind of brought it up. Um, and, and we saw this recently where uh, there were 180,000 uh, Wi-Fi enabled uh, pumps, insulin pumps that had viruses pre-installed on them. And because the supply chain is somehow not really controlled, you're just trusting that endpoint to provide this product without something there. And so it's, it's, that's part of it, right? And, and, and we're pushing it. And every device you add to your network has a risk associated with it, right? So every, not every device could add more risk. But what also adds risk is the interconnect, interconnectivity. Uh, and so in healthcare is a good example of this where maybe it's not the big hospital that I'm targeting, or maybe it is, but because you have all of these other smaller doctor's offices that are kind of connecting into that network, how those connections are managed creates a new attack vector. Uh, and with, with remote work now, we've talked about that with remote work. Remote work, I can target people now at home and then that becomes an enhanced attack service. So there's always a new vulnerability. And so if we're not kind of playing ahead of the game, finances are always gonna be an issue. And just to build on that a little too, COVID has really increased the challenge with that because you have a lot of hospitals that really rapidly sought to roll out telehealth, rapidly sought to roll out remote access, rapidly sought to add all kinds of medical devices like ventilators and other stuff to their hospital networks in order to treat the surge of patients. On top of that, you had um, a lot of changes in, with temporary workforces you know, coming and going. You had a lot of um, you know, regular people who manage these systems out sick, things like that. And that really compounded a lot of the challenges in recent months because a lot of hospitals were very rushed to put these things in place as quickly as possible. So even hospitals that had normal processes for assessing the risks of a new medical device acquisition, a lot of times those processes got skipped to roll this technology out as quickly as possible to deal with the pandemic. So that's something that a lot of organizations are going to be battling. And it's something now that, um, well, in a lot of states it's increasing again, but for a while there was a temporary slowdown um, in COVID. And when the slowdowns start to happen again, one of the things hospitals really need to do is actually take a step back and evaluate all the technology they deployed during COVID to actually make sure that it was actually deployed up to modern you know, information security standards, to best practices, to things like that. Because um, a lot of hospitals are going to find that a lot of the stuff they deploy quickly are not going to be um, according to best practices. Well, and a lot uh, of yeah, stuff is interesting absolutely. that way too, because like, for example, for certain things, HIPAA was temporarily suspended, like for telehealth. You could use things like um, you know, FaceTime, other stuff that would not normally be considered HIPAA compliant. And a lot of hospitals went ahead and rolled out technology like that to meet the temporary demands of COVID. And what's going to be a very interesting problem for hospitals is how to undo all of that technology they rolled out once those regulations go back into effect. Well, yeah. I tell every company this. I said, we have lessons that we're learning through this, right? Uh, and and uh, I've heard some great presentations that said, in crisis, there's opportunity. Uh, and we used to say this from a cybercrime standpoint is that no crisis will go unpunished. So we have an opportunity to learn some critical lessons like you're talking about there 
and make security a better conversation on the back end. Um, I always talk about when I first started helping with IT, we called them transformations, but they really were translations. We just took existing pen and paper you know, uh, ideas and just put them into a, a digital workforce. But um, you know, as we look at like electronic health records and stuff like that, and that push towards that, um, that has helped make it better for, you know, for care, patient care on the endpoint. But because that data sometimes isn't, the, the you know, protection of that data isn't built into the workflow, there, there's a huge challenge there. And I think, I think we're going to, what my, my story is, every one of us needs to learn lessons and make sure that our security actually worked in the way it needed to work going forward. Yeah, I mean, I mean, much to Christopher and James's point here, we're all in healthcare going through a reopening stage. And I, I'm willing to bet if you didn't, if you stepped into any one of the healthcare entities that are actually going through a reopening, I guarantee they're probably not thinking about the remediation plan. They're thinking about, well, we can have five people in this waiting room. We can't put this chair this way. Well, to Christopher's point, all of that technology now needs to go through a remediation stage to see whether we need to remove it, detach it. Should we still have it? Yep, it was important at the time. And, and part of the reopening plans that we did, you know, we're starting to talk about at Cambridge is starting to cycle through those individual technologies that were deployed. And yes, they were convenient at the time. Yes, they were approved at the time, but now we're back under regulation. It's not the right fit or is it the right fit? And did we do it right? Or do we need to remediate what we didn't do uh, upfront because of that procurement, fast moving, get this done. You got a day and a half to get this done, get it done. So we got to back through that now. And that's, that's an additional work that's going to take us probably half a year to get through some of that stuff. Um, I was going to look at a question here. I thought was uh, Chris Joseph Wirtz or asked a question about insider threat. And that's something we need to approach as well, is that uh, we, we saw this increase over in the last couple of years where uh, uh, criminal groups were actually even asking people inside of the companies to help them deploy product. So, and I think that's where, you know, Christopher, your idea of the zero trust model is core to where we've got to go. We have to look at deploying zero trust models and we have to understand that sometimes, especially when workforces are stressed, which they are right now, um, they are somewhat more susceptible. And if they're having financial difficulties and things like that, uh, it, you know, getting contacted by these groups and, and being offered money to give access. This is big in research industries. We've seen that. Uh, research hospitals that are connected to universities have had this issue. Um, I've, I've, done, I've worked a ton of cases and I'm, I got a call from one of the hospitals here in the Houston area that um, they said, we've got this guy who's spying you know, on, from China or something. And, and I was looking at their data and it turned out the guy was getting ready to quit. And he, had, he was copying data that he had legitimate access to to a cloud provider in China prior to quitting. And I told the company, I said, you gave him that access. That's not against the law if you provided him the access and he misused it. This is more of a policy question, not, not a law enforcement question. And, and they were a little offended by that, but I think in the end they realized that sometimes giving too much access can be just as dangerous as anything else. Yeah, I mean, James, you know, I mean, to, to you know, Joseph's question uh, that he posed there is the insider threat. One of my very first forensic investigations, which ended up in, um, a criminal case in the state of Massachusetts was in fact an insider in a resident program providing information to an external source who happened to be a family member who was doing fraudulent billing based on the information that they legitimately had access to. In healthcare, the check and balances between the insurance industry and the healthcare and who's cutting a check for, you know, three nerd and, uh, you know, three right knee replacements at three different hospitals on the same day, that checks and balance doesn't often come in place. And then, you know, so what, 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 you know, he brought up earlier in the, in the chat question is yes, the insider threats are there, not only from employees, they're there from resident programs, um, you know, and individuals that are inside your organization have legitimate access to, to the data. Well, I've been screaming loudly about blockchain deployment, and, and especially in the billing departments. Mm. Um, when, with Medicaid fraud, I worked a lot, a lot of Medicaid fraud cases from a, a forensic standpoint, and looking at the way to validate those things. And so, uh, I've seen the insurance companies start to have conversations about blockchain and the ability to validate that, you know, those those uh, transactions. And I think you're going to see more of that conversation going forward. 
the other thing I'll just add too is it's not always uh, insiders that are intentionally malicious too. There's a lot of accidental malicious insiders, and that's something you have to account for also. Like going back to the zero trust comments, I could think of one uh, very interesting real world case where my zero trust network paid off. We had an x ray machine crash, and the biomed company which serviced the x ray machine didn't have the original software to reinstall the hard drive in the x ray machine, but they serviced the same exact x ray machine at another hospital. Now, unbeknownst to anyone in IT or information security, they cloned that hospital's x-ray machine's hard drive and used it to bring our x-ray machine back to service. Now, as soon as um, they bring the machine back to service, our DNS sinkhole starts going off and we identify that there's something wrong. We pull the device right off the network. Now, because of our zero trust network segmentation, it was a non-issue for us. It didn't go anywhere because it couldn't connect to anything else. But um, we discovered that the x-ray machine was um, infected with Configure, and it made for a very interesting call to another hospital. Now, that's something that's not, not really intentionally malicious, but it shows right. how poor a well, yeah. can be. And how well, and software, and software, software downloads are big targets, right? So you're, you brought up a great point of that is that, you know, we, we do, you know, in healthcare, you're dealing with all of these companies that have all these products. So you've got a thousand different products. So if I can, if I can attack the originating company, and, and, and infect their software downloader product. If you're doing automatic downloads on IoT devices, we've seen a lot of attack services going after that. So yeah, and it, it becomes sort of this idea of, um, you know, if I'm automatically allowing, you know, these IoT devices, what am I, am I managing them? Am I doing discovery? Uh, you know, and it goes even to the idea of shadow IT, you know, are people installing things on my network that make their life better, more convenient? Because convenience and security are divergent, right? Uh, it's just the nature of the, the world we live in. Yeah, and that was that you know the diagnostic industry thing that I brought up earlier. They're walking in with USB sticks or whatever because they're not connected to the internet. Well, most of them are not. Some of them are reporting out for service, you know, portals or something like that. But they need to patch something in their software. They plug something in that USB port, you know, across the board. Now we're looking at you know, Christopher's not looking at it. I'm going to be looking at it, you know, the cross pollination or, you know, lateral transfer across the network to something else. Um, and those things are connected direct to your EHR to report the results up. Often. Well, and well, I think Joseph asks the question about, about layered security and that's absolutely the answer. Um, I mean, I've always said you got to have a lab, you know, build out. You know, you don't do software updates onto a live system. You know, you pull them down to a lab type environment, you test them in a lab, you have, you have your security product run to see, for example, and you say, hey, you want to you do a software update on my x-ray machine? You got to pull it offline, plug it into my lab network and validate it before it goes live, you know? So yeah, I think that's- well, I mean, I, I, and then you've got compromise too. I mean, with the USB thing, I mean, we lock down all the USB ports, but then again, you get a whole bunch of cranky people in a, in a teaching <laughs> administration, in a teaching institution where they're trying to come in from, say, Harvard Medical School and do a presentation on grand rounds. And they're coming in with, a, you know, a dongle they want to you know, present and actually hook up into a conference room. So there's I mean, there's obviously technologies and safeguards that you can enable that. But you can imagine that Dr. X in his office wants to see the presentation beforehand. I lock down the USB ports and only allow one option at, you know, at the organization you have to get it. And this is what it is. They're quite expensive. So it becomes prohibitive. I mean, there's also file shares and everything, but you know, in healthcare, every, somebody will want a Google to do it, or they'll want another, you know, or they'll want uh, you know, OneDrive or something. Nobody's standardized. So they're, you know, you're sharing stuff across the board. Um, it just becomes a challenge to manage and balance the security and, and giving the institution what they need to do to operate effectively. Yeah. All right. All right. I want to, <laughs> you guys are awesome. That was a great chat. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the dynamic that you have mentioned and discussed about, you know, during the height of COVID doing, you did what you had to do. Uh, you made some compromises, you, you reduced or you increased your risk tolerance, right? As security professionals, you needed to help the organization do what it had to do. So even though some things made you uncomfortable, you changed your risk tolerance. We have a higher level of risk tolerance. And then Art, you're mentioning, Christopher mentioning, revisiting. It's going to take you six months to look at this stuff. So tell me, I want to talk a little bit more about that dynamic with the eye towards giving people some advice on how to manage it. Is this... I, you know, someone told me before that one of the CISO's big jobs is to inform the CEO 
and the board of the risk. And then they make the decision. Here's the risk is what do you want to accept? And you tell me and I'll work within my budget to try and mitigate it. So what's the discussion here? Who raised the risk level during COVID? Was it you? Did you say, okay, I'm good with this? Or did you get someone on board to say, are we okay with this? And how does that going forward, if we're bringing it back down, is that another conversation with CEO board type people to say, okay, we're going to ratchet it back down. Are we comfortable back here where we were? Or are we at somewhere in between the height of risk and where we used to be? Are we a little higher? So, um, Art, why don't you jump in there? Yeah, so um, to answer it pretty point directly, um, monthly I run a, a committee called iSpot Information Security Privacy and Oversight Team. Um, so that is made up of um, Associate Legal, Chief Privacy, Chief Compliance, Chief Operating Officer, the CIO, and um, Infrastructure uh, Senior Directors. Um, and, and, and really where that group is positioned by charter at CHA is to accept or deny risk at CHA. In other words, look at the security posture. I have operations, I have legal, and, and I should mention marketing sits in that as well. Uh, and we meet monthly on various topics and have a charter about that, but that overall organization before we launched into the incident command system that most hospitals went into, launched into, okay, what's gonna be our risk tolerance? Um, we need a fluid way to say, hey, look, this is the risk, you need to respond to it. So what we did was we absorbed that risk discussion inside the command center to make it fluid, not wait for a meeting of these people, but all these other these people were participating in that daily meeting. And we would say, we wanna do X, Y, Z with telehealth. We're gonna hire this company. We're gonna integrate it this way. Are you guys okay with this? Yes, IT is. Is the risk posture that we're gonna accept here? Is this the, are we accepting this risk? And we would document that in a minute so that we had a record of the fact that, you know, if we got an OCR audit, if we got a breach, or if somebody came back, really what they're going to look at you and say, yes, we relaxed them. But did you have a process to accept and understand the risk organizationally? And it wasn't just art over here in the corner of IT making right. a decision. So right. we had a process around that. And I think that's partly it's partly a safeguard, but it's a good process that I think organizations should take uh, and make it fluid enough that it can adjust quick and not too much administrative. Chris? I definitely agree with everything said there. It really has to be more than just IT or IT security. It has to involve the clinicians and other leadership as well, because um, at the end of the day, patient safety is the primary mission of everyone in the hospital. So I definitely agree with everything Art said on that. Um, I, I will extend a little in the fact that one of the things I'm very big on, and this is not particular to COVID, but to evaluating risks and other stuff in general, is I'm very big on taking an evidence-based approach to actually how I secure stuff. So one of the things I'm really big on is actually trying to simulate various types of attacks and other stuff and see how they could impact the organization. And that's a really effective way of getting others in the organization to understand how a potential cyber risk could actually impact them. Uh, to go back to some of the zero trust stuff for a minute, um, what are the ways we actually developed a way to actually, or got the buy-in to actually go zero trust originally, was we actually had simulated a ransomware attack in 2015. I kind of felt the writing for ransomware against hospitals was on the wall. And one of the things we did is we took the ICAR test string, which for anyone unfamiliar with, it's a harmless string of characters, but years and years ago, all the AV companies got together and agreed to treat the string of characters as a virus. So it kind of provides a safe but effective way to test your um, antivirus and other cybersecurity measures. And one of the things we did is we wrote a script and unbeknownst to anyone in the hospital, we launched this script and then tried to copy this ICAR test string to every PC we had within the organization to simulate malware spreading through the organization. And we learned a lot of interesting things, both about how people responded to the attack, as well as how various technical controls held up to contain the attack. Uh, like some of the interesting things is, um, no doctor or nurse actually bothered to call, even though the AV prompts were going off on their computer. Um, hmm. So that kind of led us to efforts towards more and more employee education, getting more clinicians engaged in uh, cybersecurity. On the technical side, some of the things we discovered is that we had a segmented network on the time. We were largely segmented by department. But by doing the exercise, one of the things we learned is that even if we were to lose a whole department within the organization, it still would have been catastrophic to patient care. So we had to start thinking about ways we could take that segmentation to a, another level. And that's what kind of got us going down the road to zero trust. 
So one of the things I'm very big on to help get that executive buy-in is not just sitting down and discussing the risk, but actually taking some time, doing some tabletop exercises at a minimum, or even better if you actually can, actually simulate what some of the attacks um, and risks that you might face um, in the cyber arena actually look like. And that's a very good way to get people outside of the cybersecurity community to understand how bad things could potentially be if you leave these risks untreated. Well, I think, yeah, I think Christopher's spot on with that. And, and I build on that same idea. Uh, I mean, I tell every company, you've got to have, you've got to go out and have an, uh, a third party assessment, security assessment done. You, you're, and I think as, as our, our networks expand, you want to make sure that that third party security assessment takes into thing, account things like IoT, remote workforces, um, software downloads, all of that. But also even, even, even without putting any money out, there's things that we can all do. Having, having an incident response plan built and testing it. I, it's amazing. Statistically, 70% of companies that have an incident response plan never even do a tabletop exercise. Why? And it, it comes down to, you know, you've got this piece of paper and you've done it because cyber insurance says it, so it's a mandate, but you haven't really taken that more of that risk approach and, and see what will really happen. And, and I've run some of those tabletop exercises here in the Houston area. It's amazing what you learn when you actually take this piece of paper and try to do something with it. I think it was Napoleon says that, you know, no, no plan survives contact with the enemy. It's the same with your incident response plan. You know, you, you've got to get out there. You've got to test it. You've got to make sure that it's, it's real uh, and that it survives in the light of day. You know, so those are even just basic things. Uh, you know, uh, COVID should have taught us something. I mean, if it hasn't, I mean, if, if COVID didn't teach you anything, maybe you weren't listening. Let me just put it that way. And I'm not trying to be, you know, you know, parochial about it, but you, there are, there were lessons that we should have learned about the data that we're, we're doing, you know, and how we're using data. There's an amazing thing about data at the edge. And, and as we push data closer to the edge and we use things like tablets and we use things like temperature sensors and we start using, you know, can I, for example, if I think somebody has COVID, do I bring them into my emergency room? Typically the answer should be no, um, but as our testing speed speeds up, maybe we can use devices at the edge and we can, we can look from a more of a, a containment idea. One story I had is when I was in the military, I had pink eye um, and I was at the, uh, they sent me to the army emergency room and I sat in an emergency room with about 80 other people, highly contagious. And I sat there going, how silly is this that they're not taking into account the idea of isolation and learning that lesson. It, it was a very interesting kind of, you know, conversation that should have been had, but never was by the people that needed to be there. Yeah, I mean, to James's, you know, opinion uh, of, about practicing these plans, these plans are all great. And then you start to do a tabletop exercise and what you really find out is, well, what would you do, Art? Well, I need to talk to James. Okay, we'll talk to James. So then I'm talking to James and they're like, no, 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 stop. You're not in front of James right now. James is in his office or James is in his car going home. You need to talk to him right now. How are you going to get a hold of him? Well, I'll call him. Okay. Well, what's his phone number? Right. I don't have James' phone number myself. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, I got to look him up on the intranet art, you know, the phone directory that we have. I'm only sitting there with my phone. I'm on cell service. Can I get into that? Can I look it up? So, I mean, these are the nuances that, these are the very tiny little nuances that will cripple an organization if you don't understand your plan and how that plan is executed and practice it and try it. And built on that same idea, I had a company call me, they weren't healthcare, but it, it maps well. And they said, we have detected an intruder in our network. What do we do? Now, I said, well, you want to kick them out. And then you, <laughs> you know, uh, and then I said, they're going to be back in seven days. And he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, trust me, they'll be back in seven days and then they'll be back in 365 days. And they're like, you're full of it, blah, blah, blah. Six days later, they call me back and said, okay, how do you know? I said, how did you send out your email? How did you send out your password uh, uh, change order? We did by email. Well, the bad guy is watching your emails. So what you did is you now notified them that you they knew you were in the email system. They knew that you are in the system. And that same day you sent out the email, they grabbed your entire SAM database. They pulled your entire Act, you know, all 35,000 logins to your system and copied it off the system. So then a year later, they called me and they say they're back in the system. I was like, how? I said, you told people to change the password back then. Guess what they did? In, in three password rotations, they came back to the same password <laughs> they had used a year before. And the bad guy was continuing to log in with those usernames and passwords. It's amazing, but we've got to understand that they are persistent. 
they're not going to give up, especially if it's nation state. Um, so we, we have to know that that's the reality. And, and so know that, understand it, understand your enemy, and have an external way of communicating amongst your security people. You know, you, if, you, if you throw out a general email saying, hey, we have somebody bad in our system, you just alerted the bad guy that they're, they're in your system. They may, they may deploy ransomware. We've seen cases like that where just that email was the trigger for them to deploy ransomware into the system. So be, being aware of, of what your communications could do. Really interesting. Um, Chris, you had mentioned the testing system testing and you, you got a you know, tabletop exercise and all this. How often do you suggest doing that type of thing? So what I'm thinking is that anybody who done that testing in December may have a completely different environment post COVID. So that test from December is not as good as it would have been now had COVID not happened. So other than periodic testing, you have to think about changes. You know, but so if a change has happened, even though we're within six months, we need to test again. Tell me your thoughts. Any major change should definitely spark a reassessment, um, especially with all the major changes that occurred with COVID. Right now, I would be very concerned with um, monitoring all the increases in remote access, making sure that my perimeter you know, has remained secure despite all the telehealth and remote access that's being rolled out. Um, so there's lots and lots of things to test. And the more often you test, the better. I'm a very, very big fan of testing as much as possible and using the results of testing to inform you know, future decisions. Um, probably because I'm a you know, former scientist before I got into um, the security side of things. So I used to actually work as a drug designer. So I, I'm very big on taking a very scientific approach towards uh -huh. how I approach cybersecurity. But um, once you actually go ahead and test, it's a great way to identify you know, misconfigurations and things. It's a great way to identify um, a control that in theory should work, but it actually you know, doesn't work. Or maybe it's not robust enough and needs improvement. It's also great to look at people's responses, uh, similar to the comment make about being made about not knowing the phone number, identifying all the little things like that. Uh, the more frequently you test and run through your incident response plan, the much better off you're going to be at it. Um, so we do tests quite frequently. Uh, for an organization new to it, though, I'd recommend that at least on an annual basis, but the more frequent, obviously, the better. Yeah, and I would agree on the annual. I would also say that any major changes, like if you have a change in CIO, CEO, something like that, validate all of that information. Um, and then, uh, you know, making sure that, you know, what, what you're doing is, is making sense in, like, maybe a major acquisition. You know, maybe you, you do a merger, you know, that's a good opportunity to say, well, let's see what we do, because everybody has to know their role uh, when this happens. They really do. And, and I think I think even just a tabletop isn't isn't that hard to run. And also just to build that little, too, it's not just knowing your role, but you should probably know a couple of roles if possible, because you don't right. want to find that one guy's out sick and you can't get in touch with him and your whole yeah, incident response. You bring that up. It's kind of an interesting one. We had a company here in town that did that. They had an incident response plan and step, and it was ransomware attack. And they said, step one, unplug the internet. I mean, it was like, you know, shut down the internet. And they went to the data closet and they said, okay, where's the data? Where's the IT manager? He's on vacation. He was the only one with a key to the data closet. They, it was, it was so silly. So out of, they, they, and they'd already called incident response in because it was an actual attack uh, or it was an actual tested attack. And so they would, they would have had to have beat the door down if it had been an actual attack. And so it's, it's, that's the kind of thing that you need to know, validate, and make sure, yeah, somebody knows where to find the keys to something. I mean, it, it seems that simple, but it's amazing how those things fail when you need them. Art, you mentioned that type of tabletop testing where, where through that exercise you might discover we don't have the key. Or, you know, that's, that's even a, a trickier one uh, because unless you thought of a scenario where Joe has the key, Okay, what about when Joe goes on vacation? It's almost sometimes taking it to that even next step. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it, it all plays together. Finding it, it's, it all comes down to the little details about how you get through that plan. And then, you know, much of part of this discussion was about the assessments and reassessing. You know, there's all kinds of arguments, and I hear it probably once a year on assessments. Is that we have the we have the we have the ability to you know do our own assessments internally why are we paying this much money and i said well i i take it back to my days and james will appreciate this it's like internal affairs it's the police police and the police it, it doesn't necessarily work i'm going to tell you that right up front i mean been there done that understand it and it's like okay i'm going to tell my security engineers to go test what they built or what's out there <laughs> 
and but they know it. I want I want somebody that doesn't know it can get in, figure it out. You know, black box type of testing. Walked in the door, took the vendor kiosk, plugged into that. Could they get access? Did we know they got on? You know, those type of things. When you, I don't I don't believe at all in self-assessments, uh, which get argued, and I think it gets argued more often just because of the cost. Well, that's what I had. A, there's a pen testing company here in town that has a, a woman who has never failed to gain access to a data closet. She will literally sweet talk her way past whatever security and has ended up in every data closet. And it was amazing to me that they it, people are like not thinking about physical security, uh, you know, and just even that idea. Once I get to your servers, I own you, right? <laughs> and she got to the one, she got to the one data closet. And she goes, oh, by the way, I'm the penetration testing company, you know, person. And they're like, oh. Uh, it was it was amazing how easy it was, but that was how they started on day one of that pen test. Let me ask you about you guys have mentioned this zero trust network. Is this something that is debated and discussed, or is this an absolute best practice that nobody questions? A little more information about that, um, Christopher. Sure, I, I think it's widely agreed it's a best practice. I think most organizations are not there yet. Um, it's not something that's uh, trivial to, to implement. It, it took me uh, probably about two full years of work, uh, my team, to actually um, fully implement that. So it's not a trivial thing to do. Uh, the approach that we take is um, for our data center, uh, we're 100% virtualized, so we use a VMware's NSX to micro-segment the servers in that. For the remainder of our network, we largely use a NAC appliance, which allows us to put um, policies in by device type. Uh, so, for example, a PC in my environment has policies that allow it to talk to our server subnet, but nothing else. So no two PCs in my environment can actually communicate directly with each other, but they huh. can communicate with that server subnet. And that server subnet is micro-segmented with uh, VMware's NSX so that any particular PC can only see the servers it explicitly needs to and nothing else. So we kind of use the two solutions together to uh, largely form that uh, zero-trust framework. Uh, we do some internal firewalling as well, particularly for our medical devices and things like that, because it also allows us to provide a layer of a virtual patching for a lot of the legacy devices. But um, that's basically the approach that we took to Zero Trust. But, but it is a very complex process to actually get there, because you actually have to sit down, take an inventory of all the devices on your network, figure out everything you have on your network. Once you know that, you have to then figure out how all those devices talk to each other. So you have to figure out how system A communicates you know, with system B. Um, how it communicates with you know, other systems on the network. And that's a very challenging exercise. It takes a lot of time to sit down and map all of that out. I will say that whether you do zero trust or not, it's a very worthwhile exercise to do because if you have a really good understanding of what communication is supposed to be happening on your network, it, make, it also makes it much easier to identify any communications that shouldn't be happening on the network. So yeah. that's actually great from an instant identification um, standpoint as well. But once you take the time to really map out those systems, that's when you can use that as the basis for forming the rules that you put in place to control the communications between devices. So basically in zero trust, if a communication is not explicitly needed, it's blocked by default. And it does take a lot of time to actually get there. But I think most people would agree that that is a um, best practice, just a, a difficult one to actually achieve. Yeah, I mean, James, you know, I'll just build too. on that idea. I mean, so HP, of course, uses it through the Aruba Policy Enforcement Firewall and ClearPass and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's it's a transformation that you have. I, I believe we need to get there. But Zero Trust has been around for a while, and a lot of comp a lot of people said kind of what Christopher was saying. It just seems to be too hard to get there. And so one of the conversations I've had across, and I've, I've worked with a lot of Zero Trust vendors over the years, is that dynamic discovery has to be part of it now. I don't want to have to sit there and go figure out every single product. And so a lot of the newer ones are actually able to, you, you deploy it, it crawls through your network, looks for what's there, and then helps try to fingerprint those products. Uh, so like there's a web camera, there's a certain way a web camera should communicate based upon, you know, kind of a fingerprint that's associated with it. And then if it starts communicating differently, uh, then that, then now your policy should lock it down. And so I think, I think it's definitely at least, a, I think the conversation towards zero trust should be occurring, um, but it, it has to have the ability to segment, you know, based upon, you know, product, uh, discovery of, of the product, you know, discovery of new devices that are plugged in, um, segmenting those things. And then should something bad happen, uh, the ability to take it out of your network um, so that you can do investigation going forward. So I think working with security vendors, um, 
and don't necessarily fall for all the hype, I'll say it that way. Talk to other companies, other healthcare organizations that have already done it and seen how it works or didn't work. And so I think that's where building those relationships is a good thing. That is true. I would agree with that because we did our network in 2015. That's when we started the process. So it was largely done between 2015 and 2017. And uh, it's much less manual today if you wanted to duplicate yeah. it. Um, so it would be far easier for me to redo you know, a new environment than it was for me to do the first time um, because a lot of the automation stuff mentioned um, that is becoming increasingly common. So it's still challenging, but it's not as challenging as it was a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, Art, any thoughts on zero trust? Yeah, I, I think I think we should strive to to move towards like they like you know James, uh, Christopher and James both said the tool sets allowing you to do that are less manual at this point in time. You're getting tool sets that say, hey, at this at this OSI level, this machine is talking to this and doing this. This application level is doing this on a regular basis, and then you start to normalize what those machines are doing with each other uh, and where they're going. And then once you understand that and can map that out which usually, you know, it takes time. I mean, it's a tedious process. I mean, go into any healthcare organization and ask them, can I have a list of your assets? And they're going to go, huh? <laughs> you know, because there's a lot of them and it's not necessarily always centralized. I mean, IT might know the IT assets, but there's stuff running OSs out there that, you know, are in biomedical that they're not necessarily on that list. So, you know, getting the full picture, as Christopher said, takes time. It takes time, it gets complicated, you have to think through things. You're gonna be a bit disruptive. So, um, but it is a worthwhile exercise, I think not only to get to the zero trust model or something similar, but it helps you understand your environment. We can yeah. sit here and say, I understand my environment, but if you step through really and honestly, your entire environment to really understand it. I, I wish I could tell you the number of times I'd gone out to a company when they've been hit on in the tech. And there's two questions I ask every time. Number one, do you have, do you know what's in your network? Do you, do you have an idea of your, what, where your routers are, where your switches are, config management, all of that. And the answer I got back 90% of the time is, well, it's a little outdated. It's, it, it was a year ago and we just haven't kept it manually updated. And that's part of the problem, right? The second thing was, is that they would say, and I would ask, well, what's going on? They'd say, we have some abnormal traffic, and you can hear the question coming, well, what's normal? If you have no ability to map what is normal traffic, then the baseline that you're trying to then identify abnormal from is completely off, off kilter. So I think that's one of the things about having something like a zero trust deployment is you can, you can get a better idea as what should be happening and then you can identify much easier what shouldn't be happening. All right, excellent. We're gonna do our poll now and our panelists can vote here as well. Mm -hmm. uh, then we'll discuss, we'll have you guys guess at the results. Uh, the majority of health systems are reasonably well prepared to deal with a ransomware attack. Uh, if you agree or disagree, answer that now and then we will revisit that. I wanna get in just a little bit more before we finish up today, obviously we'll look at the poll results, but I do want to do, while you're answering the poll, our ask a co-panelist question, probably just going to get to one of these. And I'm going to give the opportunity to James to ask his co-panelists a question. Oh, you want me to ask, ask questions? Wow. Yeah, um, you know, James, come on now. <laughs> um, ask a question. All right, so let me ask you this, and I'll ask Art first. And this is actually for both of you. What, when you first took your job as C at CISO, what did you wish you knew now that you didn't know then? What would be that first, that first lesson that was like, oh, <laughs> you know? Um, I think the very first lesson that I actually wished I knew was the current state or non-existent state of our patching, our patching regime across all the devices and having an adequate tool set there. We thought we had an original auto adequate tool set when I walked in the door, everybody thought it was there and it wasn't. Um, and I mean, when you start seeing machines up for 385 days, 400 days without reboots, taking patches and stuff like that, and you're not looking at things like that, 
that was a blinder probably six, eight months into it that we were just like, what is this thing going on? Great. Chris, Great. Same question. Sure. I don't disagree with what Art said, but I would um, probably answer how much of an educator I was required to be. Um, <laughs> I guess working in cybersecurity, you kind of assume, um, I guess, you add, knowledge you about add. risks and other stuff, but um, you find you have to spend a lot of time actually as a teacher or educator, educating other people about risks and other stuff like that. And um, I guess that's one of the, the valuable lessons I picked up early on was that the better you came across it, learning to educate others about cybersecurity and risk, um, the better off you're going to fare. Don't forget your political degrees. We all have one. <laughs> Politics, education, Politics, lots, yes. lots of fun stuff. All right, let's go to our poll. Uh, I'm not going to share it yet because I'm going to have everyone guess. I assume you can't see the results. Um, Art, let's go with you first. Percentage agree with that statement. I am that we're well prepared. I would say that the it's probably around 10% that agree that we're prepared. Okay, James? I'll go a little higher. I'll say 20. 20. Okay, Chris? Nobody will vote for themselves being not prepared. <laughs> Chris? Chris? I think we might have lost Chris. How did we lose Chris? He's frozen. All right. All right, all right. So we'll have to, we got 10. Uh, for Art and 20 for James. So the answer, as I share the results, drum roll, please, Whoa. is 13%, which means Art is the big winner. Ah. <laughs> All right, Art. So you're going to get your prize in the mail, and just don't call me if it doesn't arrive, okay? <laughs> okay. Because, you know, the ma sketchy mail is sketchy and Smell things like sketchy. that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Send, All right, it, listen. send it as an attachment in an email. I'll open it. <laughs> uh, beautiful <laughs> beautiful all right well that is about all we had time for today unfortunately we lost uh christopher but we lost him right at the end so no problem there uh we thank him for participating uh regarding continuing education you could use the final slide in this deck you'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this fantastic conversation uh is ready if you want to sponsor uh one of our events hey christopher christopher's back if you want to sponsor one of our events, uh, you can go to our website, reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. Uh, Christopher, can you hear me now? Yes, I can. I dropped off for a second. All right. Well, you just missed out on guessing for the poll results, so we don't know what you, you could have won, but Art won. It was 13% uh, okay. thought that hospitals were prepared. So obviously people don't think hospitals are very well prepared. Um, so, but great conversation today. Uh, and uh, as I was saying, you probably agree with that based on all the ransomware attacks and other stuff we see. Okay, very good. Um, you can go to our website to register for our upcoming webinars. So with that, I want to thank uh, our panel very much. Great conversation. Art Ream, Christopher Friends, James Morrison. I want to thank Hewlett Packard Enterprise and Intel for sponsoring today's event. And I want to thank you for attending. So with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Great.